Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Troy Barrett. Troy is the Managing Director of BAM UK Group Limited, the holding entity for Contracts Engineering. Contracts Engineering is an ISO 9001-2008 fully integrated precision manufacturer based over in Kent. Uh, Troy, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. And leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the COVID-19 pandemic and business leaders having to navigate their firms through this storm. Tell me, for someone in your line of work, Troy, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's posed quite a challenge. Yeah, it's been it's been very challenging, Scott. Uh, and just updating on our business, we we recently, well, just over a year ago, bought another company called Furnitubes International. Uh, so we've been managing two companies through the crisis, and it's it's an external crisis and an internal crisis for all businesses and all people, uh, because external in terms of uh, social distancing requirements and, and the challenges of, of, of operating and, and, and between our customers and suppliers shutting down or having to delay things. We had these, these, these this range of external forces on us. But then internally, you know, we've, we've got a great team at both companies and we're dealing with people um, at risk of, of catching this, of COVID, of concern about their family members um, and the wider community. So there was a lot of, in, you know, uh, this is my third crisis uh, that, I've, that I've lived with since working, starting work in 2001. And this one, more than any other crisis, really hits a personal note for people, um, which makes it a much more, um, I would say, in that respect, challenging crisis. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more. There's a lot more emotion and concern, um, and, and no other crisis that I've ever dealt with has had such a strong element of personal feel, fear and concern about personal health. I um, mean, I think in this crisis, there's there's the the, the clear concern around physical health of catching it, um, and the in, in the risk if you are a high risk individual or know a high risk individual, what that might mean. But then also the, the psychological health, so the, the mental health impact of of the, of the fear that it's created and the uncertainty. And um, so far what we've seen, it's actually the fear and the uncertainty that has created a lot more um, angst and challenges for our customers, for the team, and for, our, for, for the wider community. I think so one of the- my role in, mm-hmm. I was going to say my role in navigating um, uh, the team and, and all the other leaders, including my wife who runs the other business, um, navigating through this, there's this whole other element that we really need to, to be very mindful of, that it's not just, say, a financial crisis and we this is what we're dealing with. It, it's a personal health crisis. Um, and, and the way we communicate that to our teams has been, has been um, I, I, hope they've, I hope they found it helpful. And it's certainly something that is top of mind whenever we address, uh, whenever we address people at the company. Yeah, it's certainly been a very different sort of crisis to uh, to 2008, uh, hasn't it, in that sense? And it's often said that it's unprecedented times and it's really proving to be a learning curve for businesses this period, isn't it? Because um, they're having to make decisions, like very reactive decisions, which have to be measured that they wouldn't normally have to make when you've been proactive and planning uh, for the future. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and um, we should, I sort of say, and I've heard this adage somewhere else, that this is the third time that I've had to work through unprecedented times. So <laughs> I think in many ways, you know, crises do come and you, you have to be ready. And, and this one is certainly incredibly different than, than, than the last two. Um, um, and, and, you know, this requires a much more sort of mental resiliency within people's health. But, you know, I think I'm fortunate and, and, and the team here is fortunate that we've got a lot of really um, capable people who, who uh, were, were really rolled their sleeves up and help us work through it and say, how do, how do we keep going? And, and I'm proud to say between both businesses, neither company has had a, has had a single day since, since the lockdown happened where we weren't operational. Um, and for contracts, even with probably the most challenging month we've ever had since certainly since we've owned the business, um, we still shipped 90% of our orders on time, um, which I said to the guys, it's below our target, um, our KPI, but what a great result given how challenging it was. Even just getting delivery sometimes, Scott, was hard and finding a, a trucking company um, if, if our deliveries are too big for our vehicles. Was, was just, you know, an added burden for everybody and people really rolled their sleeves up. And I said, guys, there's a great way we can measure our success um, as a company. And when we say, how did we do in, in April? That's a clear thing we can say, everyone, look what we've done in April. That's such a strong result. We should also feel good about what we've done. I think you're absolutely right in uh, saying that. And um, it's often said, isn't it, that you find out more about people and learn more in times of adversity than you do when things are going well. And it really helps develop people, doesn't it, being stretched out of their comfort zone and uh, having to really push the boundaries. And as a leader, that's no different, is it? You ha- having these experiences does prove beneficial in the long run. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And then we as a team, I, I was just so impressed by how everyone worked really hard and we had to change shift patterns and, 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 and change uh, even break patterns to, to maintain social distancing, put signing up in the factory, uh, uh, source sanitizing products. All this is going on while we're, we're keeping the business going and trying to understand which customers are going to keep taking orders and which won't. Um, and we have a London office. We had to shut it down over in a period of about two or three weeks. We went from really no remote working to fully remote working. I, I think it's impressive. We're just a small example of how many companies have done this. And I, I, it sort of it always impresses me when I see in these times of crisis how quickly people in mass can do something pretty incredible. When you think about how many businesses are still operating uh, almost entirely virtually, it's, it's amazing. And our, and our furniture team, um, they, they've coped really well with now everyone working from home and in and, and, and Zoom calls and, um, uh, you know, still fulfilling the orders that we can, but, but, but still still keeping our message and, and, and staying resilient. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, resilience is um, a massive part of um, business in any context. And you talked about how, um, obviously, when you started um, your uh, business career, I mean, everybody understands when they take on a leadership position, don't they, Troy, that it's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. But did you quite imagine that you would be facing three separate crises during your career? Um, well, I, my, my career started with the dot-com crash. And at the time I worked literally, uh, in New York on, in a wall street bank, not on wall street, but uh, in a wall street bank. And, uh, you know, I think that, that is, is, you know, there was the nine 11 tax and then the, and the dot-com crash going on. It's always sort of stuck with me, but that, that was my first impression, a bit like, you know, your first impression of meeting somebody, my first impression on my on my, my first job since working in restaurants in high school, uh, um, was 
was there was a crisis before my training was even done. <laughs> so, mm. um, you know, I, I would I, I think that um, I've been through them. That they're never easy. They, they're always very highly stressful. But that that's always sort of stayed with me. Whenever a crisis happens, I always go back to, to 2001, and now I go back to 2001 and 2007, 8, 9, and and it, it sort of. I guess in a way, Scott, it, it doesn't give me comfort, but it gives me a bit more resilience to say, okay, I've been through something like this before. Um, let me think about what I've done. And, and, and let me, when I, when I talk to, if I've got, I've, we've got a, some non-executive directors and a couple of investors as well. And when I talk to them and they've been through it, I, I find that it's really, really helped me uh, navigate, uh, navigate through it. Uh, so, so my view is, you know, there'll, there'll be another crisis in ten years of some sort, or some sort of uh, unexpected negative shock. Um, and uh, I guess it's just ingrained that, that I, I kind of in, not I don't anticipate them, but uh, but I know there'll be more. Um, I'm, I'm you know I'm 40 years old now, and, and I know I'll have a good few more before I retire. Exactly right, and um, I think that. Um the experience of having gone through those separate crises, that will also hold you in good stead for the future, won't it? Because as a leader and even as an employee, I think times of difficulty, times of adversity, that experience of getting through that, that can often be one of the greatest teachers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it, I guess it, it's, it's, it's something that, um, yeah, it, it, it's been a challenge, but um, yeah, it's, we just push through it. Exactly. So experience is one good teacher. Um, but have you ever maybe had any mentors or people that you've worked with, colleagues, for example, throughout your career, who've maybe also had quite a profound impact on you and maybe influenced your style of leadership as you've developed? Oh, absolutely. I think from, from going all the way back to my first job at Bear Stearns, the investment bank, and working with some really great people um, and, and, and just learning from them, it's just been fantastic. Um, in fact, I'm very fortunate. One of one of the folks I used to work for invested in me now and in, in, in my company, um, an ex-Bear Stearns colleague. And um, I, I think I've had a pretty good career. Um, you know, a couple of missteps and where, I, where I've gone for a couple of times. But I, I've worked with some really great people. Um, and, and one of the things I keep coming back to is just for me, it's this, this concept of partnership. Um, whether it's whether it's someone working for me, someone working alongside me, or 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 someone on uh, an investor that, that, that's sort of supporting me, it's you know the importance of building good partnerships. So find people that that uh, you know I share similarities with, and we can work well together. Um, through thick and thin, to me, has just been probably one of the biggest takeaways from even before this crisis, and why I think you know um, this crisis is hard. There's still going to be some tough decisions to be made. I think we're still very early innings. Um, but I'm, but I'm pretty happy with, with, with the group of people that I work with. And, you know, we ask each other tough questions. Um, but again, back to this concept of partnership, uh, it's just, it, it's something that, that, that you kind of build up whether it's good times or bad times before you need it when it's bad. Absolutely right. And um, of course, you mentioned there um, the importance of trust uh, in a partnership and investing in people. I mean, that's absolutely massive in being a leader, isn't it? Sometimes taking a little bit of a leap of faith. And when you do get things wrong, being willing to sort of take that on board and learn from that. I mean, that's also a vital part, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. We've had, 
Um, you know, I've made my number of mistakes and some people that I think would be cool but weren't right for us. So I've, I've made the bad hires, um, you know, within, within contracts, we were industries when we bought the business that we really shouldn't be in, that they, they weren't good growth industries for us and weren't good sustainable industries where we could build partnerships with our customers. So we had to exit those. And there's, there've been some tough decisions, but every one of those tough decisions has, has turned out to be, a good one. Um, you know, a good example, Scott, is when, when we bought contracts with, with 33%, so about a third retail shop fittings across from high street to supermarkets. And we're now pretty much zero. And, um, you know, we, we knew back then that it, that it was a tough place to be in for, uh, for contract manufacturing of steel. So this kind of a shop fitting type uh, providing provider and we got out of those markets and it was very tough because imagine Scott was saying we have to replace a third of our sales mm. um, and we have to find better customers and that's quite hard work to do. Um, what a great decision because and it wasn't just mine. We, we, we debated it and we discussed it with the team um, and, and the investors at the time. And we all agreed that, you know, take, take the tough decision. And, you know, I'm really glad because I think it would be a very tough industry to be in right now. Um, and one where I, I think the decisions we'd have to make now would be much more challenging. How do we not made the decision to exit that industry uh, probably about four years ago, five years ago now? And you talk about that example. Um, so if you could, um, Troy, maybe go back 10, 15 years and speak to the younger version of yourself, is there anything that you would tell the younger you to do differently going forward? Oh, that's, that's always one of those really tough questions. I think um, looking back 10 years to so 10 years ago now, I was a couple of years out of getting my MBA, um, working for a, a good group of guys um, in New York doing um, private equity investments. And if I would have go, gone back then, um, you know, I, I think I would have said I probably would. I should have been more patient. I, I definitely had that issue when I was younger. That everything felt like it needed to happen quickly. So, I, you know, advancement had to go very quickly, and I wanted everything to move fast. And I think now I'm a bit more circumspect about it, and a bit more um, patient. Um, and realizing I've got a long life to live. I've got a long career ahead of me. Everything doesn't have to happen this year or next year. Um, and sometimes, you know, rushing can lead to bad decisions, mm. um, when a more thoughtful approach, um, is, is often more called for it. It's kind of this funny thing in the world now, Scott, because, uh, people's careers are going to be longer than they ever were. And we're going to live longer than we ever did. And, and yet there's this feeling that of, of such high velocity of, of, of careers that people are very worried about if they're not advancing every six months, every year. And um, it's just, I, I've sort of seen this disconnect there that I'm, I'm trying to be very mindful of and say, well, let's just slow down here for a second and think. And I, I take this approach I read somewhere. It's think, um, start slow to go fast. So basically get your bearings, learn as much as you can, think of what direction you want to go in before you start going in that direction. And 10 years ago, I wish I did more of that <laughs> rather than, 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 than feel as confident to rush. Um, uh, because I don't think I was necessarily, I was rushing, but not necessarily in the direction I wanted to go in. And I have to say, if there are any 
people among the younger generations in particular who are listening to this and are aspiring to be leaders. I think that's very sound advice to take on board there, not to become essentially blindsided by short-term gain, but to always think about the long-term. It's hugely important. And if we think about the future again, uh, Troy, before we do uh, wrap things up on the programme today, um, do give me an idea as to what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for the BAM UK group, and also what you hope to achieve in that time as well, particularly beyond the pandemic as well as navigating through it? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, starting with, with, with uh, the pandemic side, I mean, I, I do think we're in very early innings. Uh, as to say, um, I think there's uh, a long, um, slow recovery in this. And I think um, the real challenges haven't really hit us yet because the government is still paying 80% of most people's wages and providing lots of loans that uh, won't come due uh, and certainly even payments for 12 months. So I, I think the pain hasn't really been felt yet. And I think that that's probably the worrying thing in, in, some, in some bad news, but I think it's, I think it's honest and it's hard to see how it, it goes any other way. Um, but on the positive side, um, I think we as a group, uh, we, 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 are, we were well capitalized, meaning, you know, we had good cash and we were in a good position before going into this. Um, and we're, 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 we've made some tough decisions, uh, probably a bit more quickly than we probably would have. So in that sense, it's, it's kind of forced us to do some things we probably should have anyway. And so I think it'll also present opportunities. Um, you know, we would like to find one or two more businesses to buy. Um, and, and I don't think that's going to be from a distressed standpoint. It's more of a, um, as we say, you know, baby boomer generation looking to retire. I think there'll be quite a few folks who think, yeah, after this, I think I am ready to sell my business. And that's the sort of conversation we like to have. Um, and then also we started developing a pretty interesting product that, that, that marries our business that the manufacturing business that contracts with the street furniture and infrastructure product business at Furnitubes, uh, a new product that, that has really come out of the crisis um, that we're going to start marketing in the next couple of weeks that we think is really exciting and positive and also very beneficial. Um, so we're, we're pretty excited about that as well. Certainly seems like an exciting times, Troy. And what I think would be really, really fantastic for the listeners, especially, is if we could maybe look to have you back on the air with us in future, just to look at what sort of opportunities are coming about as we move through the pandemic and toward the end of all of this, and also catch up on just how the group is doing as well. Um, we are just about out of time uh, for today, but I've got to say it's been a hugely insightful and also really enjoyable experience speaking with you. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to come onto the program with us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Scott, and I really appreciate it, and I look forward to speaking again. I look forward to it, Troy. Thank you very much once again for your time today. That was Troy Barrett, the MD of BAM UK Group Limited. Uh, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland itself. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet, and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. Lord Blunkett was first elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.